Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, this morning, verses 20 through 25. While you do so, let me again uh, welcome back students from their break, and also welcome uh, visitors with us or guests today. Thank you for being here. Love an opportunity to greet you after the service, and if you can stick around for a meal, uh, please do so. This morning, uh, we've come to the end of our study of the book of Hebrews. Next week, Lord willing, we'll turn to the story of God's redemption in the Old Testament prophet Samuel. We'll see God at work among very ordinary people like Samuel and his mother Hannah. Here in Hebrews, as we close out this book, we've arrived at a benediction and a greeting. Throughout most of the book, the writer tells us of God's work in Christ for us. Here, we see especially God's work in Christ in us and through us. And so what we have is a benediction or in, in, in its midst a, a prayer of intercession. And then we have... Um, a a greeting at the end, a kind of personal note uh, in verses 22 to 25. So let me invite you to consider this prayer and what we might call a postscript to the letter. What's he say? What's he pray? And how does that help us? Hear the word of God from Hebrews 13, beginning at verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Amen. Thus ends the reading. Of God's word, let's ask for his blessing. Let's pray. Father, speak to us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. One of my favorite stories is Les Mis. Some of you have probably read it. I have not. I hear there's a lot of plumbing work in it. Others uh, maybe have seen uh, one of the musical performances. I have wept my way through Broadway productions of it at least six times. The story begins with Jean Valjean, released from prison after 19 years, having stolen bread and then numerous escape attempts. He's marked as an ex-con, and he can't find a place to get um, shelter and food. He's Desperate, he's bitter, he's 
angry. He's a frightening kind of figure. And then a bishop in the church finally gives him shelter and a meal for the evening. But in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean steals the silverware and flees. He's captured by police who suspect he has stolen silverware on him. They take him to the bishop's house and ask about the silver. And in a moment of lavish and undeserved grace, the bishop covers over Jean Valjean's Sin. He says the silver is a gift. And Jean Valjean should take the candlesticks as well. A debt gets canceled. Sin is forgiven. Mercy is shown. And it starts to radically change Jean Valjean. He becomes this remarkably self-sacrificial man who gives his life in loving others. It's a beautiful story if you haven't seen it. Or read it. Something gracious was done for him and to him, and it produced something gracious in him and through him. That's not unlike how the author closes the book. The whole book says, God has worked for you in Christ. And now it says, and God works in you. How will we see that work in us? Let me highlight three things from our passage. Not in the order it's given. I want to take the last paragraph first. Verses 22 to 25. We see it in the writer's heart for others. And then at verse 21. In the humility to be needy. And then in verses 20 and 21. Surrounding 21. In the embrace of the helps to seek God's help. Now that's a mouthful, but let me, just, let me just take those one at a time. In the first place, out of order, verses 22 to 25, the postscript, let's deal with that first, where we see his heart for others, a heart shaped by the good news. A few words about these final words, just a few words. There's a word of appeal, verse 22, I appeal to you brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly, bear with it. In other words, receive it, believe it, put up with even uh, my my hard words to you. Uh, Now, if you've been at Redeemer since the fall of 2016, when we began preaching through Hebrews, uh, you may feel free to chuckle at the idea that this is a brief word. But of course, though it took me a year and a half to walk us through it, you can read it out loud in under an hour. It's a brief word. You've heard State of the Union addresses longer than that if you were able to persevere through them. There's a word of appeal. There's a word of relief. Verse 23, you should know, he says, that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. So Timothy evidently had been detained or imprisoned, but he's out. The writer knows they'll be glad to know that because he knows that they care about the cause of Christ. And Christ's suffering servants. And he hopes that he and Timothy can make a visit. You can see why some people think Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Though he's never named. Just the identification here even of Timothy in that apparently close uh, missionary circle around Paul. I'm not definitive about that. Then there's a word uh, to spread the word around. Verse 24. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, he says. Don't. In other words, miss telling anybody, I said, hey, 
And then he goes on to say, and you know, the Italians too, they want to spread the love. They said, what's up? Probably not, but I'm sure they didn't do the Vulcan greeting from Star Trek either, right? These are Italians, warm-hearted. They want to be sure that these others know they greet them. And then there's a word here not to be missed at the end. It ends, the whole book, grace be with all of you. This is the most important word. God's unmerited favor in the face of our demerits found in and through Jesus Christ. He doesn't want them to miss that. So the writer spends a lot of time in the book teaching them God's truth. But just notice that he teaches them God's truth with a warm-hearted love and interest in them. He cares about them. They're on his heart. Do you see how the gospel has gripped him? We were on God's heart. He sent his son. Now these people are on the writer's heart. And he knows that Timothy is on their heart. Why? Because of the good news of the gospel. Has it shaped you that way? Do you speak the truth with zeal, holding nothing back, but in a warm-hearted, loving way with a real genuine interest and concern for the people you're speaking to? That's how the writer does it. Now, so much for the postscript. What about the prayer at verses 20 and 21? We'll go into this at greater length. It's a classic benediction. This is how many of the New Testament letters actually end. A benediction is, just means blessing. It, it ends with some kind of apostolic blessing or prayer that God would bless his people. The uh, sentence in verses 20 and 21 is, is a, a hugely complex sentence. And so I want to unpack it in parts. I want to unpack it in two ways. The first is to get at the meat of it. What's he actually saying? What's he praying for? And then what's all the, well, it's not clutter, but what are all these piled up phrases around what he's praying for? And how do they help us? How do they address us? So in the first place, notice the heart of the prayer, verse 21. He begins, verse 20, may God, now where's the main verb? Verse 21, may God equip you with everything good that you may do his will. That's what he's praying for. May God equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Everything else is built around that phrase. Helps us understand it. He prays that God would equip them with everything good in order to live the way that God wants them to live. Right? In other words, he's saying, look, the whole book was about how Christ lived. Christ died. Christ rose for your salvation. You couldn't save yourself. He had to do it for you. Now, you who believe in him are to live for him. But you can't even do that on your own, is what he's saying. You need God to equip you so that you can do that. Now, what does this mean, equip? To equip means to mend what is broken or repair something disordered. To strengthen something weak, to restore something. It's a word that's used of fishermen mending their nets, pulling them in after a catch. Uh, Many of the nets are, are broken perhaps, 
And what do they do? They retie the knots. They mend. They repair. They make it what it ought to be. They restore it to what it once was. This is what the word means. Outside of the Bible, the word is used of physicians mending broken bones. Putting it back. Making it whole. Uh, It speaks to either the lack of something... uh, or the defectiveness of something. Either something is lacking and something therefore needs to be supplied, or something is defective and it needs to be remedied. In other words, what the writer here is telling us is that we don't inherently have what it takes to do God's will. We're unable to do, in fact, anything good that accompanies salvation on our own. Augustine's prayer in his confessions is spot on when he prays to God, command what you will and give what you command. Lord, tell me what you want me to do, but you've got to help me do it. I can't do it on my own. Now, that's not a posture of despair. It is a posture of dependency. It's, it's a, it is a posture of despair in self, but it is a posture of dependency on the Lord. One of the strange ironies of being human is that all of us are weak, needy, but we try to project the impression to everybody else that we are strong and self-sufficient. We're like the emperor in the familiar story who had no clothes. As he walked around town. It's all pretend. The church in Laodicea in Revelation. They said to themselves. I am rich. I have become wealthy. And I have need of nothing. And God had a different opinion. He said to them. But you do not know. That you are wretched. Pitiable. Poor. Blind. And naked. Now. God speaking there not in purely financial but in spiritual terms. They're full. They're satisfied. They think they've got everything they need. And God says to them, you don't even know yourself. How weak and frail and needy, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked you are. Why do we think that way? Because we think too highly of ourselves. And we think too little of God's grace. We think we're capable of serving God. We don't know that we can't lift a finger to do what he wants as he wants it done without him. I confess, I preached for years at Redeemer. And I usually think if I just turn my phrase right, it'll really make a difference. As if the plain, clear speaking of the gospel won't make a difference by the power of God doing what only God can do. That's just my public ministry. You can imagine how it is living with me. You don't want to. I understand. You don't want to imagine it. You don't want to live with me. I get that too. That's fine. All right. You don't believe me yet. That you can't do one thing on your own to please God. To do what God pleases. Apart from him. Here's a practice test. Every day this week, wake up and do what just the writer of the book of Hebrews has told you to do over the course of an hour-long exhortation. Just start, in fact, just start with the basics. Faith, hope, 
and love. That's chapters 11, 12, and 13. Faith. Don't drift away from Jesus. Don't be hard-hearted towards Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Persevere in faith, even if the race is long and you're exhausted. Hope. Seek for the heavenly city that is to come. And don't grow faint-hearted, even if the Father disciplines you on the journey. And it's painful, as all discipline can be. Love. (laughs) Chapter 13. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ, verse 1. Love strangers. Love those who are imprisoned and persecuted for the sake of the gospel. Love your spouse if you're married and keep the marriage bed pure. Love other people's spouses and do likewise. But don't love money, but be content with what you have. We're just six verses in in chapter 13. Bear reproach for believing in Christ. Suffer anything by anyone for acknowledging you need him. Continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Continually. Share your possessions. Give what you have. Obey your leaders and submit to them so that their work is a joy. This according to Hebrews 11, 12, and 13, is just a portion of God's clearly revealed will to every believer. Let me know how your week goes. If you think you can serve God without God. So he prays, may God equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. May God do so for us all and give us the humility to be needy. Now, the last thing I want you to see is is, uh, all the stuff he says around that main point and how it helps us seek God's help. How it builds our confidence that we can actually go to God for help. Uh, let's, let's pick at it by asking a variety of questions, six or seven questions. Who is it that will help? Who will equip? Well, verse 20, that's where he begins. Now he says, may the God of peace. This is the one. And remember the book. Our efforts for God don't make peace with God. It's Christ's efforts For God that brought about peace with God. That makes him to us not God the judge who condemns. But God the peace who has reconciled and is on our side. If there's one thing you need. If you're going to walk with him and do his will. As you discover how you don't. And you see your sin and your filth. and And your selfishness is exposed to you more and more. And as you are taught that you are a needy person. And weak and helpless apart from him. That doesn't feel great when that happens. And what I need to know is. Is God out to get me? Does he hate me? Does he show me all of this because he just wants me to suffer more? Or is he actually for me when he helps me see me? 
In March of 1981, John Hinckley Jr. attempted to assassinate President Ronald Reagan outside a hotel where the newly elected president had just spoken. And after the assassination attempt, as Reagan was moved eventually to the operating table, the good-humored president said to the doctors, please tell me you're all Republicans. (laughs) Said Dr. Joseph Giordano, a Democrat, Well, we're all Republicans today. He said it humorously, seeking to put at ease his family, the physicians, and the whole nation. But it's a serious issue. If I'm going to seek help from God in heaven, I need to know that God in heaven is interested in siding with me in the help that I need. And he is. He is to me in Jesus, the God of peace. Second, ah, but does he have the ability to help me? Don't just say, well, of course he's God. No, 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 there's more here. Now, before we get to it, a little story from one of my boys when he was a child. I forget how little, but he had a clogged tear duct and it required surgery. So we referred to a surgeon by his eye doctor so that a tube could be inserted into the tear duct to allow drainage properly. But shortly after getting him home, I forget if it was hours or days, the tube on one side started to slip out. So we returned first to the eye doctor to find out what should be done. And instead of referring us back to the surgeon who did the work to have it pushed back in, he decided to give it a go himself. And he was so confident and so supremely arrogant And he didn't have the expertise that he needed. But he sure put Melena and our son, I wasn't there, through the ringer of pain. It was like a medieval torture chamber without a good result. His eye is fine, don't misunderstand. But the doc didn't have the ability to do what he was trying to do. When you're sick or needy, you want a physician who can really do what you need done. Can God do it? Well, look at what it says. He is the God of peace who did what? Who raised Jesus from the dead. If he has the power to raise Jesus from the dead, he has the power to hold on to the weakest believer. The weakest believer has the same strong Christ as the strongest believer. Are you dead and need life? He raises the dead. Are you weak and need strength? He gives power to the weak. Are you bruised and broken by the fall? Isaiah the prophet says, A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He's gentle, but he's able. Ah, you say, But can I trust him to really know what I need? Well, of course, he, God raised from the dead, who? Our Lord Jesus, who's described how? As the great shepherd of the sheep. That's the next phrase in verse 20. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep, and in doing his will, nothing he asks of you is more than he already did for you. Right? Um, Have you been led to walk through the valley of the shadow of death? 
This good shepherd has already been in that valley ahead of you. He knows how to equip you to live in that valley, to walk through that valley, as well as to live on the mountain and the plateau. Yeah, but you say, but on what basis will he help me? I mean, I've got no claim. I don't deserve it. I mean, who's paying the freight for this thing? Well, Jesus paid the freight. The next phrase, look at it. By the blood of the eternal covenant, may God equip you. What's he getting at? He's getting at the blood of Jesus shed for us. For the wages of sin is death. I don't deserve God's help. I deserve that death. I deserve that judgment. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness and no pardon. Blood must be shed because someone must die. But as Hebrews says, all those Old Testament sacrifices of bulls and goats, they could never take away sins. But when Christ came, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then by his blood, God remembers our sins no more for all who look to him. You need to know for living the Christian life, Because in the Christian life, you're constantly battling sin, constantly being discouraged by your failures. You may want to give up. The devil's talking in your ear that you ought to give up because clearly God would have already given up on you by now. But the blood of the eternal covenant says on the basis of the shed blood of Christ and his finished work, God promises to keep on working in you. It's an eternal covenant. It's eternal peace. It's eternal life. It's everlasting. He doesn't quit on it. He doesn't quit on you. Because the basis of his working in you is rooted and founded on his performance, not your performance for him. Well, you say, but where is he going to do this work? What I really want is God to go out there and fight a bunch of battles for me and clean up the world so that I don't have to deal with the junk and clean up the messes of other people so I don't have to deal with the hurts of relating to them. Do it all out there and externally. And God says, no, where I'm going to do this work is in you. Notice God equip you to do his will working in us. That which is pleasing in his sight. This is kind of like Philippians 2 where the Apostle Paul says, Work out your salvation for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When he says work out your salvation, he doesn't say work for it. It was worked for by Christ. But that salvation applied to you is, is bringing transformation. Express it. Work it out. Why? Because God's at work in you and through you. So... Perhaps you've encountered some kind of difficulty as a Christian. If you haven't encountered some kind of difficulty, please talk to me. You may not be a Christian. But say that difficulty is, you know what you're supposed to do, but you're really struggling to do it. Or you know what you're not supposed to do, and you keep on doing it. Imagine that thing as a tree falling across your path as you're riding a four-wheeler in the woods. You got that mental image? You're riding a four-wheeler. There, there's an obstacle in your way. Some duty, some temptation. How do you, so to speak, move through it? How do you get past it? How do you 
So one way people would say is, well, you do all the work. Get off your four-wheeler. Pull the tree out of the way. I mean, yeah, Jesus died for you so you could be forgiven. But now, come on, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Make some promises. Fulfill your promises. You know, do what needs to be done. Pull yourself along like with a, with a winch pulley. It's, it's all up to you. But, of course, it's too big for you. And if you keep trying that, you'll discover you can't do it. Another approach people say is, well, you need to let go and let God. Total passivity on your part. Just, just you know, kind of stand back, fold your arms, wait for God to show up and do what only God can do apart from you. And don't even try to move forward until the path is clear. There's no more temptation. There's no more stumbling. And obedience is easy. And the problem with that is that God doesn't live the Christian life for you. He calls you to live the Christian life. The third approach is this. I know what I'll do. I'll get on one side of that log. And uh, God, who helps those who help themselves, well, he'll get on the other side of that log. So I'll move my 50% and look to God to move the other 50%. Or, okay, I know I'm weak. I'll move 10%. I'll look to God to move the other 90%. But at the end of the day, God helps those who help themselves, which is nowhere in the Bible. And Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So here's the gospel way. You walk over to the tree, you bend down, you grab hold, and you depend upon God to do what you cannot do, saying to him and yourself, I am weak. Lord, help me. I can't do it, Lord. Rescue me. Leave me not into temptation, but support and sustain me if I'm in temptation. Help me to love you. Change my heart. I need you. And while you do what you're supposed to do, the power of God and the gospel is at work doing it so that by the Spirit of Christ we put sin to death. By the Spirit of Christ we see fruit born. As we do what we're called to do, we work because God works. God works in us and through us. So do you see that salvation is all of grace? Your pardon and your acceptance with God, your hope of everlasting life is by the finished work of Christ on your behalf and your transformation to do what pleases God is by Christ's work in you. It's all of grace. Well, the last question to pick at this and close out the phrasing, what's the end goal of all of this? Is it just getting me to be a little bit more like him? Is that it? Well, what if I'm just really content with where I am? Isn't that sufficient, we might say? Can I just coast from here, Lord, in my last years as a Christian? And the answer is no. Resoundingly, no. Because his purpose is his own glory, and he has staked his reputation on his ability to fill heaven with a restored humanity, children who bear the family likeness, likeness, and he will not fail to deliver on that. And we go on, though we may be ready to be done, he is not done until he takes us home and completes the work in our glorification. And so he says, live for his glory. May this all be to his glory. And may we always say with Augustine then, Lord, everything good in me is due to you.
The rest is my fault. Even as we pray, Lord, equip me to do your will and work in me that which is pleasing to you. Let's pray that. Father, equip us to do your will. Work in us that which is pleasing to you. For the glory and honor of Jesus, in his name I ask, amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.